0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back with part two of our talk about beans. You know, I'm thinking this one's going to be even, even, it's like a two bean salad if the last episode was a one bean salad. We got a lot of great stuff to get to today.
1: Well, this is one I think that it especially will, will. I don't know if it'll make everyone think about beans in a new way, but it might. It might just because I feel like, especially in that first episode, we were kind of approaching, or I was certainly approaching it, like you know, beans are are very interesting, but they're also kind of mundane, and there the in this the mundane nature of beans seems to run deep. You have well, bean doubt. I well uh, to a certain extent, but. Uh, in the space between recording the last episode and, uh, and recording this one, uh, I found a number of new angles and then, um, and then leapfrogged off a couple of angles you explored. And I think it really paints a picture of beans as a far weirder um, uh, part of our world and a part of our culture and myth making, even if a lot of that weirdness has largely been sort of bled out um, of sort of the like, popular modern understanding of the food.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. So if you out there still have bean doubts, allow us to try to evaporate them with some uh, with some deft parching through today's episode. Uh, so I wanted to start off today by talking about philosophers and beans and a particular bean field slaughter from Greek history slash legend. Uh, So there are actually a surprising number of stories about Greek philosophers and Beans. There was one that I came across. In in the last episode, I mentioned this book that I had been quoting by uh, Ken Albala called Beans, A History from Bloomsbury Publishing in 2017. And I'm going to refer back to that book a lot in this episode, too. Uh, But there was one thing I came across in that that was talking about the Cynic philosopher Diogenes, who the one fact you may remember about him, if if nothing else, is that he famously lived in a jar in Athens instead of in a house. In a jar, like on a shelf? No, not on a shelf. I think it was like out in the out in a public square or something. Mm. It was like a, a turned over jar, uh, and and this is consistent with the idea of the Cynic school of philosophy, which is not about cynicism in the the modern English use of the word, which means a sort of. I don't know, a pessimistic suspicion of others. Uh, The Cynic School of Philosophy meant rejecting unnatural social norms and conventions and sort of being true to yourself or true to your nature. So Diogenes was famous for violating taboos and rejecting the conventional norms of Greek culture in his day. So I think he was known for being dirty, of course, living in a big ceramic jar, uh, for hanging out with dogs. I think for being nude and doing inappropriate things in public – like if I remember correctly, there's a story that he uh, decided to defecate while in the middle of watching a play. Uh, But apparently another way that he showed contempt for society's norms and and the normal sort of like a food valorization scale is that he made a point of eating a type of bean known as lupins. Uh, This is a bean that was considered in in many cases only fit for feeding to animals or for the extremely poor and starving. Uh, Now, of course, this is not true. Lupins are a perfectly good Food, if prepared in the right way, and they're part of many, uh, you know, food traditions around the world. But that, like we talked about in the last episode, there are often negative cultural and especially class associations with certain types of beans. And you can say lupins are are a very. They're a difficult bean. They're, they're a bean you really got to get to know because they've got these toxic alkaloids in them that you have to get out of them by soaking the beans for a long time. And supposedly you got to do all this other stuff to make them appetizing. Uh, but so I think by eating them, Diogenes was sort of doing the equivalent of saying, like, you know, look at me. I'll, I'll eat dog food. I don't give a crap. <laughs> but the, uh, the, the Greek philosopher bean connection I really want to talk about is between beans and Pythagoras. So the ancient Greek philosopher and religious leader Pythagoras lived from about 570 to 490 BCE, and though he was extremely influential, it is actually hard to know all that much with certainty about the life of Pythagoras because none of his writing survives, so we have nothing from his own hand. Mm -hmm. And the earliest accounts of his life and teachings come from hundreds of years after he lived, and they often differ substantially from one another – So when exploring basically any factual claim about Pythagoras and his teachings, there's going to be disagreement within our sources and in the analysis of modern scholars. So uh, unfortunately, there's not a lot you can say about him with certainty. But with that in mind, there's a lot of stuff you can say about him that can be understood as according to some sources. Right. We have echoes of
1: Pythagoras uh,
0: as opposed to just Pythagoras like itself in a pure recorded form. Right. But in these echoes from Pythagoras, some really interesting facts emerge. So a bit of basic background. Pythagoras was born on the Greek island of Samos, again, sometime around the year 570 BCE. Uh, He was said to have traveled extensively around the ancient world in his youth, and he eventually founded a sort of religious commune in Croton, a place in the south of Italy. Pythagoras taught some kind of mystical beliefs that unified aspects of metaphysics about the soul and the universe with mathematics and numbers, which seemed to occupy some kind of sacred position in his worldview, as well as music, which tied in with the mathematical aspects and also teachings about nutrition and politics. So like in the realm of politics, It seems that the Pythagoreans disdained tyranny and they really disdained democracy. They favored a kind of oligarchy where the body politic would be ruled by supposedly the best of men, you know, rulers appointed for their virtues. Mm, That always works out. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, And in terms of nutrition, again, there's some disagreement. But the Pythagoreans were widely understood to be vegetarians eating bread, honey and vegetables. More on that in a bit. Now, as with his life and his teachings, there are a bunch of conflicting accounts of the death of Pythagoras. But I wanted to start with one of these stories uh, about his murder at the hands of a mob. and uh, oh God, it, it, again, it's hard to keep all these straight, but uh, I think in this account, or at least in some of these accounts, he's attacked by a mob that favors democracy. So the people have spoken and and it is time for Pythagoras to be slaughtered. So this account comes from the writing of Diogenes Laertius, who was probably writing sometime around the 3rd century CE. So understand that it's like hundreds of years, well, like 700 or 800 years after Pythagoras lived. It's a long time later. Oh, and this is translated by uh, C.D. Youngay. Diogenes writes the following. Pythagoras died in this manner. When he was sitting with some of his companions in Milo's house, some one of those whom he did not think worthy of admission into it was excited by envy to set fire to it. But some say that the people of Crotonid themselves did this, being afraid lest he might aspire to tyranny, and that Pythagoras was caught as he was trying to escape, and coming to a place full of beans... He stopped there, saying that it was better to be caught than to trample on the beans, and better to be slain than to speak, and so he was murdered by those who were pursuing him. And in this way also, most of his companions were slain, being in number about 40, but that a very few did escape. So, what? When I first read this, I was like the the pigeon in Moonraker that does a double take. I I did the (laughs) what, what? So uh, according to this story, Pythagoras and his followers were running away from a violent mob and they came to a bean field and they decided it was better to stop running and get chopped to pieces by the crowd than to step on the beans.
1: This is the the, the first time I'll mention this, but I'll probably mention it again. So in in the previous episode, I, I made a statement about how how, you know, beans are less interesting compared to corn, that corn is spookier, that it's children of the corn, not children of the bean. That, uh, and and, uh, and likewise, you know, you would you would maybe be afraid of uh, he who lurks behind the rose in the cornfield, but not mm. in the bean field. Like there's something about a cornfield that can be kind of creepy, especially in Stephen King's stories. But uh, when, when we look back through uh, in this account, but also in other accounts that we'll look at later on, we really get the feeling that that the I mean certainly there were no cornfields in uh, in Italy uh, at this at this time uh, like beans bean fields were that place so if you can imagine a Stephen King story where, so, where a, a fringe religious leader on the run refuses to go into the corn would rather face death by mob than go into the corn like that makes sense in a Stephen King story so just sort of imagine that it's beans instead of corn in the <laughs> Stephen King universe and I feel like. We get an appropriate idea of how Pythagoras and his followers are are believed to have felt at this point.
0: Right. At least according to this story. But yeah, you're you're exactly right. I I love it. And and there are other versions of the story, by the way, uh, particularly told by one author named Iamblichus, who say that it was not Pythagoras himself who uh, died because he wouldn't cross a bean field. But that it was a cadre of his disciples who were chased to the edge of the field and then accepted this gruesome death rather than cross it. And in Iamblichus' version in particular, there's this detail that uh, the last member of Pythagoras's followers who were slain was a pregnant woman named Timika who bit off her own tongue rather than reveal the secret of why the beans were prohibited. Hmm. That's, more, that's more walking behind the rose, I think. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's some straight-up Stephen King juice right there. Now, as I mentioned, there are other accounts of the death of Pythagoras, but what we know is that either this account is in some way based on the truth, or if not, it was at least considered plausible enough to believe, given what people knew about Pythagoras in the ancient world. And it seems that one of the things widely known about him was that he really disdained beans. Uh, I've come across some really good illustrations of him you know, just saying, like, no to beans. Like, he's standing next to a bunch of beans, and he's like, uh-uh. Yeah, both hands up, yeah, looking away. Get away. So, why on earth would anybody believe that this, that this ancient Greek religious leader would rather die a painful, bloody death than trespass the bean field? Well, there are a ton of possible answers, and in a way, I think they're all fascinating. But here's one of the main ones that I wanted to talk about, and we'll go through a number here as uh, as explored by Albala in his book. But one of the main things comes down to a teaching that is consistently associated with Pythagoras in the earliest writings about his life – which is that he taught the metaphysical doctrine known as metempsychosis, which is usually translated into English as the transmigration of souls. Mm -hmm. This is actually very similar to other ideas of reincarnation that you might've encountered before. So according to the doctrine of the transmigration of souls, the Pythagoreans believed that there was an immaterial and immortal soul that was separate from the body. This soul would survive the death of the body And after the death of the body, the soul would be installed in a new body, possibly the body of another human or another animal. And this probably connects to one of the other Pythagorean teachings that I mentioned before, which is that it's widely understood that the Pythagoreans preached against the eating of meat – he and his followers were said to be vegetarians, and if, you, if he was both a vegetarian and a believer that, that human souls and animal souls would transmigrate back and forth into human and animal bodies, you can kind of see how these beliefs would fit together. Like, if you were to eat a chicken or a cow, you might literally be cannibalizing a dead relative. Now, if this is truly what Pythagoras taught, it is not known for sure where he got this idea, though it's been speculated that he could have acquired it from Indian thought uh, during his travels. It is says, said that he traveled all over the ancient world. Uh, but w- where this idea comes from, we just don't know.
1: Yeah, it, I mean, it, it obviously it sounds like a in many ways like a less robust version of um, of reincarnation as you encounter it in um, in, in, in Buddhism and uh, Hinduism Uh But uh, yeah, so it would be interesting if this was an idea that he picked up in his travels.
0: There are some ancient authors, like I recall reading somewhere that uh, I think it might have been Herodotus who said that Pythagoras got this idea from the Egyptians, but I don't think there's any indication that Egyptian religion ever featured reincarnation in this way. So that seems to be probably a mistake on Herodotus' part. Now, a slight variation on the reasoning here is just that vegetarianism was considered consistent with a non violent way of life preached by the Pythagoreans. But so this. Makes sense, right? You, you don't know the exact reason, but it would seem to all sort of fit together if he believed in the transmigration of souls and also preached vegetarianism, that, you know, don't eat animals because they might have souls that you would, you know, wouldn't want to be eating in them. But then there's this other strange dietary prohibition of the Pythagorean cult, which is that Pythagoras allegedly forbade his followers to eat beans. Yeah, which,
1: again, modern vegetarians uh, and vegans— yeah, you know you you know that you need the beans. <laughs> so yeah, exactly. It seems ca- and it seems counterintuitive in several ways.
0: Yes, this is a problem, right? Uh, now, at the time, within Greek culture, these would have been over, overwhelmingly, this would have been referring to fava beans. Mm-hmm. Like the Faziolis genus that gives rise to many of the common beans we eat today, that is a genus that comes from the Americas and had not crossed the, uh, the Atlantic yet. So probably what they're talking about here are fava beans, though I guess there could have been lentils and stuff too. But it seems they were referring to fava beans and fava beans were a common source of food for people and for uh, grazing animals like for cattle in the Mediterranean at the time. Uh, of course, beans are an especially important food if you're a vegetarian. So why would Pythagoras have forbidden not only eating them, but even treading upon them, even going into a field where they're being grown? Well, here I'm going to quote from Albala's book, quote, The simplest and perhaps most plausible explanation is that beans are part of the whole cycle of reincarnation, and they house human souls. To eat a bean is thus a form of murder. This was Varro's explanation, An Orphic Fragment puts it like this. Eating beans and gnawing on the heads of one's parents are one and the same. Wow. I think that's a sufficiently vivid image, right? Like, oh, yeah. you, you you want to eat beans? How would you feel about chewing on your dad's head? It's a very it's very Dantean, actually. It makes me think of yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Count Ugolino and Archbishop yeah. Uh But anyway, so yeah, the idea here would be that beans contain souls, potentially human souls. Uh, now there's more. Uh, now I want to get into more explanation on that mode of thinking in a bit, but first I also just wanted to mention some alternative explanations offered by other writers over the centuries, which Albala sort of catalogs and discusses. Now there are some explanations for the bean prohibition that would be based in politics. Uh, so I think these would be more sort of metaphorical interpretations of the idea that, that Pythagoras would, would have bean scorn. One idea here is that beans were a symbol of democracy, the democracy that Pythagoras hated because beans were used to cast votes, right? You might have a jar where if you wanna vote yay, you put in a black bean and if you wanna vote nay, you put in a white bean or maybe you put in different jars, you know, something like that. Mm-hmm. It can be a, It can be a way to tally anonymous votes. Of course, in a proper oligarchy, uh, nobody would need to vote with beans, right? That's right. The best rule, and then you just keep your beans at home or in the field. Uh, Yeah, or, or you just keep them away. Uh, But also the idea here is that there could be a political implication, which is just that beans are the food of the working class, whereas meat was preferred by the rich elites. And probably in Pythagoras's view, the better people, the people who deserve to rule because of their virtues, would have been associated with meat. Well, you know, whereas the people who don't know how to rule a city, they they would be the people eating beans.
1: I guess one way, one thing we have to sort of think about with this this idea of this being the uh, part of the Pythagoras and belief system is to realize, too, that like, it doesn't mean they were necessarily going out trying to liberate the bean fields or or necessarily <laughs> trying to change the way that other groups uh, consumed food. They could have been very, like, uh, closed off from them and saying, this is how we live. This is and then we are better for it. Um, I, I I think that's that's kind of a distinction. I think in general, we have to keep in mind when thinking about different relig- religious groups and you know, in, in the contemporary world, for sure, but also just historically, that that uh, not every uh, religious group is going to be about, about spreading their belief system to all around them.
0: Right. And not all, uh, like, religious dietary restrictions are meant to be a universal rule. Right. For example, I think there are a lot of religious scholars of, say, like, uh, Judaism and Islam that would say, like, prohibitions on pork and other types mm-hmm. of food that are prohibited within that religion are not meant to be universal prohibitions, but they're prohibitions for the faithful. Right. But then again, I'm not sure if we uh, – that's a possibility always when you're considering dietary uh, uh, restrictions that are advocated by religious groups. But I do recall coming across at least one legend, though I don't recall the source of this where uh, Pythagoras was said to have tried to convince a cow not to eat fava beans. So if you're, <laughs> if you're preaching to cows, that's probably, it probably means you want all humans to obey as well.
1: Right. But then again, that also sounds like a perfect parody of someone whose belief system you're, um, you you don't agree oh, yeah. with or don't completely understand. You're like, oh, I bet Pythagoras is out there. What's he going to do? Is he going to tell the cows not to eat beans?
0: Yeah, uh, though that, that could very well be the context there. Yeah. <laughs> Um, okay, so there are other possible explanations. One is more nutritional and psychological, you know, pretty straightforward. Beans give you gas and gas prevents you from having a clear head. And a lot of ancient philosophers were really concerned about like cutting things out that would cause problems in the body that would interfere with you having clear thinking. You got to have a clear head to live a good life. And so you can't be going around farting.
1: You know, this is this is interesting because I was I was thinking about this, like in in terms of of how we think about flatulence and flatus, we it's easy to have a very like one to one vision of that. You know, the idea of like, well, farting is distracting and you don't want to do it. That's going to mess with your mental um, uh, outlook or, you know, or we'll get into some of these ideas later where it's like, well, a fart is a ghost. You don't Mm -hmm. want ghosts coming out of your butt, you know, that kind of thing. But uh, there's an idea that I ran across in a book that I was, uh, I was really enjoying uh, reading through, a 1999 book called Plants of Life, Plants of Death by Frederick J. Uh, Simmons. And we, which, which deals not, not only with beans, but various other plants and tra- traditions in a number of different cultures uh, in the East and in the West and uh, uh, in Africa, et cetera, uh, about how there are these different ideas of life and death wrapped up in them. And um, in getting into the idea of uh, of beans and flatulence and in discussing uh, Pythagorean bean bands, uh, he, he discusses several of the possibilities, but, but one that uh, I hadn't really thought about was the connection between flatulence and bad dreams. Mm. And... He credits uh, uh, Friedericus Baum in this idea, but I've also read that Diogenes touched on this in considering uh, Pythagorean ideas. Quote, One should abstain from fava beans since they are full of wind and take part in the soul. And if one abstains from from them, one's stomach will be less noisy. And this is key, one's dreams will be less oppressive and calmer. Now, uh, that quote uh, attributed to... uh, uh, two Diogenes uh, was brought up in a L.A. Times article on beans from 1996 by Russ Parsons. Uh, but I, I thought that was that that was interesting, and perhaps more telling. Yeah, if you if your sleep is troubled, if your dreams are troubled, troubled because you're, you're going to bed gassy with beans, mm-hmm. then that that could very well <laughs> darken your outlook on life or or mess with your head, especially in an age where you have you know maybe more supernatural ideas uh concerning dreams and the interpretation Mm -hmm. of dreams
0: yeah that's really interesting but uh, i mean another way to think about it though i guess is like it's kind of like the coach of the chess team is also going to be like telling all of their players like don't eat cookies right before don't eat pickles when you're going to bed or something oh uh, yeah they're trying to keep their people in in like ship shape
1: yeah uh, like reading through some of the, the other stuff in simone's book there's you get into a lot of uh, there are prohibitions against foods because their connection to dreams, but also prohibitions against foods that could be consumed in a dream. Like it's not not that you shouldn't eat basil mm-hmm. before you go to bed, but you've offered basil within the dream. You should abstain. Um, now, I, I was looking for more. That's on just the, a
0: promise I promise I can't keep. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, once you're in the dream, I mean, not to say nothing of the dream within a dream. Um, Uh, But but I was looking around for a little bit more about this, and I found an echo of this sentiment in Iranian traditional medicine Uh, in the 2014 paper Insomnia in Iranian Traditional Medicine by uh, Faisabadi et al. Uh, Here's the quote, "Uh, upward movement of rancid vapors towards the brain due to eating flatulent and vaporous foods. Beans, lentil, leek, and uh, fenugreek cause upward movement of vapor towards the head, heavy-headed feeling, headache, depraved illusion, nightmares, and consequently, awaking at night and fearing during sleep. Wow. So, yeah, I think after reading that, I'm even more convinced. Yeah, if you're, if you're, you know gassy and full of nightmares and flatus is waking you up in the night, um, I could see where that could lead into some ideas that, yes, these are some foods that should be
0: avoided uh, certainly before you go to bed, but maybe in general if the if the dreams are bad enough. Well, that makes me want to respond to, to, to these folk beliefs with some actual science on farting and beans. So what if we take a brief little detour here on the science of uh, legumes and flatulence? Yeah, let's get down to it. Okay, so the question is, do beans cause flatulence? That seems to be a widely believed association. And if so, why do they cause flatulence? Well, uh, the answer seems to be, yes, they do, but maybe not as much as you might think, and that there are very good, well-known reasons why they cause flatulence. So the gas produced during the digestion of beans is actually not produced by the cells of your body themselves, but by your gut microbiota. The bacteria, particularly in your large intestine, that break down molecules that your own metabolism sort of gives up on. Dried beans, even after cooking, usually contain compounds known as oligosaccharides. And I found an article in the Journal of Nutrition explaining this. This was by, in fact, I wonder if we have cited this article before. It may have come up in our uh, Fardanomicon episode several Mm -hmm. years back. Um, But this is by Donna M. Winham and Andrea M. Hutchins from the Nutrition Journal called Perceptions of Flatulence from Bean Consumption Among Adults in Three Feeding Studies. This was published in 2011. And so I just wanted to look at the relevant paragraph where they break down the metabolic pathway that causes flatulence as a result of eating dried beans. So, quote, Most legumes contain relatively high amounts of both dietary fiber and resistant starches. These would be the oligosaccharides I just mentioned – The soluble oligosaccharides found in legumes are not digestible by human intestinal enzymes alone. Instead, oligosaccharides such as raffinose and stachyose are broken down by bacterial fermentation in the intestines. Although some rectal gas is due to the ingestion of air, the majority of flatulence is produced from bacterial fermentation. The byproducts of this degradation are hydrogen, carbon dioxide, methane, and sometimes sulfur, depending on the bacteria. Normal intestinal processes move these gases out of the body in the form of flatus. So the primary cause of of beans leading to farts is the action of the bacteria in the gut, I think specifically the large intestine, fermenting these starches that the body can't break down on its own, these oligosaccharides. And the authors also point out that while there is evidence that eating beans can increase flatulence on average, there is a lot of individual variation. So they're not going to increase flatulence or increase it in the, uh, in the at the same rate for everybody. Uh, to quote from the results of their feeding studies measuring flatulence, quote – Less than 50% reported increased flatulence from eating pinto or baked beans during the first week of each trial. Only 19% had a flatulence increase with black-eyed peas. A small percentage, 3-11%, to reported increased flatulence across the three studies even on control diets without flatulence-producing components. And so, yes, it does appear that on average beans do increase flatulence, but they say that people's concerns about excess farting from eating beans may be exaggerated compared to how much difference they actually make.
1: Mm.
0: Now, coming back to a note that's explored in Albola's book on this, uh, mentioning that these, these starches that can't be broken down by the body itself but have to be fermented by the bacteria in the gut, these oligosaccharides – they have to be fermented in the large intestine specifically as a product of eating dried beans, not fresh beans. And this is interesting because you can see how that has um, sort of – it translates to the differing reputations of these vegetables. Like fresh green peas are beans. They, they are mm-hmm. of the, the family Fabaceae, and I've never heard anybody – ...link green peas to flatulence. They're eaten fresh. Uh, Fresh green beans are beans. They're beans still in their pods. They're actually the common bean, faziolus vulgaris. And yet, they don't have this association either... So they don't seem to create these oligosaccharide problems. But there's a trade-off, of course, which is that by being served fresh, they have to be more they have to be served more seasonally or they have to be frozen. They, they don't offer the same uh, advantages in terms of the simplicity and durability of their storage and shelf life version that, that you get from dried beans. But anyway, okay, scientific digression on flatulence done. Now I want to move back to Albola cataloging the reasons that Pythagoras might have disdained the eating of beans. So another explanation that has been given by writers over the years is, well, what if it's just because beans are too delicious? You know, Mm -hmm. this is basically a prohibition against gluttony. This is perhaps plausible, though it doesn't seem to fit with most of the other thinking of the time that looked on beans not as like a decadent luxury, but as like the exact opposite of that. Maybe maybe this was just offered by some ancient writer who personally really loved beans.
1: (laughs) Or perhaps, you know, the idea that it's, what, it's something available in bulk enough that, that more people can be gluttonous about it? I don't know. No, yeah, maybe. I mean, but but yeah, I, you don't see that coming up a lot. Like, the bean is not the symbol of gluttony. You don't think of, uh, well, no, no, I don't think you do. You don't think of the bean. No. Like, it, it again, it is it is often uh, attributed as sort of the, the food of the common man.
0: Okay, now we're going to get into sexual biomagical explanations, <laughs> of which <laughs> mm-hmm. there are a number. So in this category, we get into some really weird territory under this explanation. And this was, this was again put forward by a number of ancient writers who were commenting on abstention from beans Uh, in this explanation. Beans are to be avoided because in various ways they either resemble human genitals or they have something to do with sex, procreation, or regenerative power. Uh, and there there are several ancient stories that compare fava beans in particular to female genitals, but there's another one that connects uh, all the way back to the transmigration of souls explanation, and this goes from the connection to of uh, beans to testicles. Here I want to read from Albala again, quote, Aristotle picks up this thread when he explains that beans are like testicles, but adds that they are like the gates of Hades in (laughs) being the only plant that has no joints. That's some great Aristotle logic. Yeah, yeah. Now, what would that mean? Well, Albala continues, that is, bean stems are hollow and have no nodes and thus serve as a kind of elevator shaft from the underworld, the means of exchange for souls. Actually, they are specifically compared to a ladder, and this makes sense if one has ever seen fava bean pods protruding horizontally from a plant. They do resemble a ladder. This would explain the reluctance to run through a bean field and trample the stems, as well as the ban on picking the pods or rungs of the ladder. In short order, Aristotle also claimed that the beans were avoided because they are like the form of the universe, perhaps again a veiled reference to their regenerative power. Even otter is the idea that a nibbled bean leaf in the sun will smell like semen or the blood of a murdered person, which must smell different from ordinary blood. <laughs> uh, good editorializing from Alba there. Uh, in any case, all of these notions point to the idea that beans are some transitional form of human in the great transmigration of souls. Wow. Uh, yeah, this one is putting flatulence in my brain. The vapors are floating up. This is the kind of,
1: um, of statement here that um, it, it can feel like like genuine madness setting in, you know, where, where too many connections are made between um, unrelated mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. And, and then you end up seeing like the human soul in everything around you. Um, it just sounds like just falling into the, the
0: philosophic deep end and sinking to the bottom. Well, we're going to sink even farther. These same types of associations, they keep going on. So Albala explores some linguistic connections between ancient words for beans in various languages, I think primarily in like Indo-European languages, and associations between that and words for swelling or rotundness, which could in some ways connect to ideas of swelling up with flatulence, but also to pregnancy, fertility, and the generation of life. And in the latter vein, uh, many ancient authors seem to make an association that seems quite bizarre probably to most modern listeners, but uh, an association between foods that make you fart and foods that make you sexually potent. Uh, Again, there's basically a linguistic conceptual logic to it, especially in ancient Greek thought. And Albala explains it like this. So so you've got uh, pneuma, you know, this is where we get like the word pneumatic, P-N-E-U-M-A, mm-hmm. meaning air or breath or soul. The Latin equivalent would be anima, as in like animated, like an animal is. So there's already this existing linguistic association between like the breath or the gas and, and what the soul is and that this is the principle that animates a being and makes it alive. So like in, in much ancient Greek thought, when you die, your, your breath leaves you, you know, like the gas of your soul evaporates from your body. And also in the creation of life, there's a breathing of life into things as an exchange of gas, literally. Alblo writes that the pneuma, uh, quote, was the basic principle of life and it is generated in the stomach in the form of gas, just as it is transferred in the act of reproduction. This also explains the bizarre association among authors like Pliny of flatulence with the libido. In other words, eating beans not only makes you fart, it helps you conceive. The bean actually contains the regenerative force. And so uh, this can be applied in multiple different ways. Uh, Albala writes that uh, that, it, you know, you may want to eat beans to absorb the power of these souls if you're trying to, like, stimulate the, the farting and the libido part of your body. But like the Pythagoreans, you might do, want to do the opposite and avoid eating these beans because of the sort of, like, windy, regenerative soul power that's contained within them.
1: Hmm.
0: Very weird. Now we've been exploring a lot of the explanations that lie behind this in terms of, I don't know, linguistic associations and, and religious thinking and stuff. But there are also some biological realities that Albola explores that could possibly have to do with beans uh, and and how they could have influenced the the creation of this story about Pythagoras. These following explanations that I, I'm going to mention are not things that were explored by any ancient writers. These are are modern explanations that have been offered. And the first is based on a heritable genetic condition that causes an enzyme deficiency. So most people can eat fava beans and breathe the pollen of fava bean flowers, and they're just fine. But there is a very rare inherited medical condition that causes a specific enzyme deficiency in the body, which can in turn cause catastrophic reactions to the ingestion of fava beans or fava bean pollen. Uh, And this condition is known as favism, caused by an underlying glucose-6-phosphate dehydrogenase deficiency, or G6PDD. Uh, People with G6 PDD can have horrible, even deadly reactions to fava beans in their pollen. And if a person with this condition eats fresh raw fava beans, it can lead to a reaction called acute hemolytic anemia or the sudden destruction of copious amounts of the body's red blood cells. Now, outwardly, this can result in symptoms like fatigue, difficulty breathing, fever, yellowing of the skin, dark urine, and in extreme cases, it can even be fatal. So, a question some modern scholars have posed is, could Pythagoras have prohibited fava beans because he witnessed somebody having an acute reaction due to G6PDD? Interesting possibility, but it seems like one of the – I mean, there are a lot of explanations like this for – Records of the ancient world that like fit together in interesting ways, but I, I did I don't feel like there's any particular reason to favor this hypothesis.
1: No, I mean it. Uh, it seems plausible, you know. E- either he witnessed this or he heard accounts of this happening. Hey, some people mm. have been known to eat fava beans and grow, you know, extremely ill uh, or even die. But yeah, if we don't have any specific cases for it, uh, you know, specific instances in in the writing, then. Yeah, I don't know if we should put too much emphasis on it. Yeah.
0: One thing is it is interesting about the idea of avoiding not just eating the beans but avoiding running into a bean field like mm. if the pollen could even trigger the reaction. I mean, yeah. that, that's kind of interesting.
1: You could definitely see it potentially playing into some of these ideas. Um especially if we get when we get more and more into this 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 realization that the bean fear and the bean holiness here is is mm. is by no means just uh, something that jumped out of Pythagoras's head. Like, right. This seems to have been a, 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 a cultural idea, perhaps a, a widespread cultural idea. Uh, but we'll get more into that in a minute.
0: Now, another interesting scientific observation. Again, this is not from ancient interpreters. This one might be original to Albala, but at least it, it's it's not ancient. Um, this could complement the previous evidence that Pythagoras believed beans to contain souls. And the the simple fact here is that sometimes it looks like bean plants bleed. Mm. Yeah, so there's a chain of biological causes at work here. Uh, essentially, bean roots can become infected by a bacterium known as rhizobium. And these bacteria thrive in tiny little oxygen-starved chambers within the roots or, or nodes on the roots. And the bacteria exist in a mutualistic relationship with the bean plant. So the bacterium is, according to Albola, able to extract ammonium nitrate from the atmosphere, which it shares with the plant, which is good for the plant. And then the plant provides these little anaerobic nodes for the bacteria to live on and in. And they both create proteins that bind whatever free oxygen is available with the help of iron molecules. This might be familiar to people who uh, know anything about animal biology or medical Mm -hmm. science. Uh, Albala writes, quote, this protein is called leghemoglobin and functions much in the same way hemoglobin does in our blood binding oxygen with iron for our bodies to use in cellular respiration. Moreover, when cut, the nodes are red, exactly like blood. So uh, imagine being in the ancient world, you cut open a bean plant. There are parts of it that if you cut, cut open might bleed or look like they're filled with blood. And these little nodes would look red like human blood for basically the same reason that human blood is red.
1: Now, I know a lot of you are probably thinking uh, right now, you're thinking, well, I bet Pythagoras just hated beets then. (laughs) Um, And, you know, actually, uh, according to Simmons... We do see a, aversion to beets in some cultures uh, he He mentions prohibitions against quote certain plants as food or temple offerings because their coats, flesh, or juice are similar to blood and meat in color mm-hmm. so he cites examples uh members of the uh, banaya caste uh, of the of the Punjab uh, with meat prohibitions here extending. Two carrots, turnips, onions, and red lentils. Also the prohibition of beetroots and tomatoes uh, at Brahmin meals in, in Gujarat, as well as havoc Brahmins in South India, among others. And uh, he, he mentions... Um, How uh, Fraser got into this a bit as well—the idea of like uh, the similarity between things. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, uh, so that's interesting. He's not again not specifically talking about Pythagoras in this instance, but we do see this sort of thing in other cultures enough to realize it's you know it's kind of a universal uh, uh, phenomenon of of humans engaging with their food. Sometimes the food reminds you too much of a thing that is prohibited, and the prohibition will extend to those things, if not
0: in an everyday.
1: Way than mm-hmm. certainly within the realm of sacred ritual.
0: When it comes to beets specifically, I can imagine another cause for uh, for for beet scorn, which would be possible horror at uh, going to the bathroom after consuming yes. beets, which can mm-hmm. be even though it doesn't hurt you, it just visually could be quite alarming. Yes,
1: yeah. New parents always warn your child uh, the first time they have a lot of beets or or blue cupcakes. Uh, either one. <laughs> Now, I, I mentioned the idea that there, you know, this idea of being weirdness and, and beings and death and reproduction and so forth, that it doesn't just emerge right out of Pythagoras's head, that it uh, you know, is perhaps more universal. That's an argument that Simmons makes uh, in his book. uh he writes, quote, since parallels to Pythagorean beliefs about the fava bean are found in the bean beliefs involving various species of beans of widely scattered non-Indo-European peoples in Uganda, India, Japan, New Guinea, and the New World, we are likely dealing with basic human reactions to beans or legumes in general, which I thought was interesting.
0: Yeah, okay. So this would be the idea that since there is, uh, there are, similar kinds of bean fascination and bean magical beliefs in all these different cultures that don't necessarily share like say uh, uh, language or mm-hmm. cooking traditions or anything like that it might be something more just like about the raw biology of beans that causes people to have these sort of thoughts like maybe the ways they look or things they do when you eat them
1: yes and just thinking too hard and too long about how they relate to our own uh, worldview and magical ideas At this point, I want to to run through just a few other bean – uh, ideas that, uh, that that Frederick J. Simmons brings up in uh, Plants of Life, Plants of Death. These these are all related to so what I loosely categorize as bean death folk reliefs. Uh, sort of leaning into the the, the Stephen King esque um, world of, of, of beans in the bean field, being a place of death, a place of connection to the underworld, and potentially rebirth.
0: Okay, so we're going to walk behind the pods.
1: Yes, so. Um, uh, he points out that there was a British folk belief that pregnant women should not eat beans because it could impact the child mentally. Um, additionally, bean blossoms have an evil reputation in northern and midland England in coal mining districts because it was long held that coal mining accidents were far more likely to occur when bean plants were blossoming. Hmm he also writes that according to german folk belief beans and peas were quote cult foods of demons so it was best not to eat them on nights that were quote favorable for magical divination <laughs> now i have to admit that that all kind of sounds like a riddle to me i'm not exactly sure what, so what that like, would
0: mean you like don't get down with the fava beans on Walpurgis just knocked.
1: yeah yeah something like that i would imagine um Uh, And and certainly there's some more examples where we see beans connected to specific uh, dates, specific um, traditional uh, festivals, Mm -hmm. uh, because also in Germany, there there were superstitions that eating peas on the on 12th night. That's the 12th night after Christmas. uh, that This would give you vermin infestations or leprosy and that beans, peas or lentils during this time could at least make you itch if you were to consume them. Now, there's another British folk belief that bean fields are inhabited by ghosts and spirits. Mm. And in 19th century Leicestershire, it was said that if you slept in a bean field all night, the awful dreams and resulting desires would just drive you insane. Like you would just you would not survive a night in the bean field. Sleeping a night in the bean field would be like
0: sleeping a night in a haunted house. Whoa. But due to my bean love, I want to say it's going to be like that Simpsons episode where they have to spend a night in the haunted house to discover <laughs> that the tap water tastes better than the stuff they have at home.
1: <laughs> now, um, I know what a lot of you are probably thinking. You're probably thinking, well, this is all well and good. But did beans ever march in battle, bringing forth an army of the undead to march <laughs> alongside int like walking trees in Welsh myth? Well, yes, they did, because <laughs> uh, Simoons points to the writings of uh, the Welsh bard uh, uh, Taliesin, who described just such a scene, uh, quoting, quoting the work, um, the elm trees, he quotes. Quote, Stood firm in the center of the battle. Heaven and earth trembled before the advance of the oak tree. The heroic holly and hawthorn defended themselves with their spikes. And then, meanwhile, the beans took part in battle by quote, bearing in its shade an army of phantoms. So, beans and spirits again. Yeah, yeah. This idea that like the beans, the bean field is where you find the ghosts uh, uh, that'll drive you either you know mad or fill you with maddening desire. And the idea that yeah, if the trees were to to and all the plants were to rise up and march in an army, then the beans would surely lead an army of phantoms uh, into battle. I love that.
0: Okay. I think we have a serious deficiency in the horror fiction and horror movies of today, a, a deficiency of bean-themed horror, right? This has <laughs> got to be – somebody's got to pick up on this.
1: I feel like we have just largely abandoned our, our understanding of, of supernatural beans outside of like the one you know uh, uh, fairy tale about uh, magic beans that grow uh, gateways to the, the world of the giants. Now, speaking of fava beans, uh, I was looking at a 2020 University of Copenhagen study looking into the possibility of fava beans taking over more uh, from soybeans to meet the increasing popularity of plant-based meat alternatives, specifically in Denmark. Hmm. The argument here is that fava beans put less strain on the environment as a crop, and unlike soy, they can be grown locally in Denmark, as opposed to having to depend on soy, which is largely grown in the United States and in South America. Um, And and particularly in South America, that's where you get into some of the the real environmental concerns about, you know, what kind of land is being transitioned into soy-growing land. Yeah. Um, But this particular study here highlights the use of wet fractionation to concentrate fava bean protein and remove digestion-inhibiting substances in the beans. And the result is dry, fractionated fava bean protein-rich flour, (laughs) Uh, so I, I don't know where that will ultimately go, but it, it's an interesting, uh, interesting bit of, um, of info there and potentially insight into the future. Again, thinking about, um, you know, turning more and more to um, to artificial meats and, uh, and bean based diets, a return to the bean fields mm-hmm. and, and perhaps a return to, you know, beans, uh, depending on beans that, that grow more naturally within a given region.
0: Now, there's another great bean I wanted to talk about for a bit here, and that's the black eyed pea, also known as the cow pea. And uh, yes, it's called a pea, but it is a proper bean. It's in the family Fabaceae. And the modern species name of the the cow pea is Vigna unguiculata, which uh, was once known as Vigna sinensis because it was believed to have come from China, but this is now known to be incorrect. Uh, Modern botanists and archaeologists believe that these beans were first domesticated in Africa, probably originating in West Africa, uh, though I've seen the possibility of Ethiopia as well. Uh, but Albala in his book notes that Some of the archaeological evidence about their history, it comes from the Chad Basin, which seems to indicate that people who were originally making a living primarily through animal herding came into the area about 1800 BCE, and within about 600 years of occupying the Chad Basin, they began to convert to an agricultural civilization with their staple crops consisting of pearl millet and black-eyed peas. So again, like we see in so many places in the world – A transition to a settled farming existence based on a sort of crop package of complementary grains and legumes. I think the examples we talked about in the other episode were, say, like uh, you might have wheats or or grasses like einkorn and lentils, or you could have maize and beans in, uh, in the Americas. But black-eyed peas have been an important part of West African agriculture ever since. And they've eventually, of course, spread all over the world. They spread north to Europe. They spread east to Asia. And they're, they're popular in all these different regions. Uh, and, of course, they eventually became part of the food traditions of enslaved people taken from Africa to the Caribbean and to the southern U.S. So much like okra and rice, which were also imported from African culinary traditions, black-eyed peas ended up becoming foundational elements of southern American cooking in general.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I've seen some, there's been some excellent uh, uh, cooking documentaries about this connection. Uh, and, uh, and, and I, and I have to say, uh, if, if anyone out there, if you haven't had um, a, a bean sandwich uh, connected to some of these African culinary traditions, uh, or at least descended from them, uh, I highly recommend it. Like, it's
0: it's just so good. I love black eyed peas, and I've never had a bean sandwich. So I got I got to look that up. Do you know a good place to get one in town?
1: Um, I don't know that I've had one at a restaurant. I've just, mm-hmm. we've just followed some recipes. Okay. Uh, but, uh, but, and, and yeah, you can find some really good recipes online. In fact, there's some for, um, for black eyed pea based sandwiches, which, uh, which can be a way to, cause we have that kind of like loose new year tradition of eat black eyed peas, right? Because they're, mm-hmm. they're good luck or it's part of a good luck sweet of foods
0: uh that's the the health part of the package right you eat uh you eat pork black-eyed peas and and greens and that's for what mm-hmm. uh, happiness uh health and wealth
1: yeah yeah and so black-eyed peas if they're cooked certain ways can be kind of a hard sell but i tell you if
0: you make a really tasty sandwich with them uh you're good to go Okay, well, I'm going to have to try the sandwich. But uh, but anyway, like other examples we, we've looked at, beans seem to occupy a sort of hub of religious significance in the West African context as well. And Albala mentions that for example, in Yoruba religious practice, people would regularly offer meals, often based on black-eyed peas, to the godly beings or spirits of the Yoruba religion known as Orishas. And Albola quotes this interesting Yoruba proverb that goes, «You do not know what black-eyed peas are like for dinner» and i was like whoa i wonder what that means but he explains that it refers to a person who is so stupid and negligent that he is totally unmindful of the consequences of his actions so like you're you're <laughs> so dumb you don't know what black eyed peas are like for dinner uh, that's Interesting. very good but another interesting thing about black-eyed peas is um, that one of the cultivars that became especially popular in, I think, eastern and southeast Asia are the so-called yard-long beans. So these are a, a variety of cowpea. They are Vigna unguiculata, but they are the subspecies uh, sesquipedalis. They are not actually a yard long, despite their name. I think they're usually about half that, but they are really long. I don't know if you've ever bought these and tried to cook with them. I, I remember like just like kind of laughing as I was trying to like handle them one time at the farmer's market. (laughs) Yeah.
1: I don't know if you included a picture. I don't know if we've actually tried to cook with, uh, with, uh, with peas this long, but uh, you'd have to like chop them in half, right? Or, or quarter them even.
0: I think sometimes you, you just shell them. Like you get the, the fresh Mm. peas out of them. But, uh, but yeah, I'm not sure. I, I honestly do not remember what I did with them when I got them.
1: Being enthusiast, let us know. How do you (laughs) handle
0: these things? I got another black eyed pea fact that I think is very interesting, and this picks up on something we've mentioned a couple of times on the show before. Uh, it's one of those, you know, those sort of mind opening moments that is triggered by a simple reimagination of a food item. In the past, we've talked about how avocados, you know, uh, American audiences, Mm -hmm. I think, primarily are going to think of avocados as a savory food, right? You have them in salty applications, or not necessarily, they don't have to be salty, but you wouldn't usually think of putting avocados in sweet foods. But that is by no means universal and it is in no way based on objective things about the food itself. That's just a cultural convention. Avocados are used in sweet applications in all kinds of food traditions.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, uh, avocado smoothies, for
0: example, can be quite sweet and quite lovely. Uh, but there's another food that's like this, black eyed peas. Black eyed peas are sometimes used in sweet rather than savory dishes. If you haven't had it, that can be kind of hard to imagine. But uh, for example, I was finding a bunch of recipes for a Vietnamese dessert food that was uh, like a, like variations on the idea of sweet or coconut sticky rice with black eyed peas.
1: Mm, yeah, I mean I mean that reminds me of that you do encounter um, beans in a lot of uh of uh East Asian desserts mm-hmm. uh, where there'll be like a bean paste or a bean filling that'll be
0: quite sweet. Another one I haven't tried but that's going on my list. So I got to have uh uh sweet sticky rice with black-eyed peas and a black-eyed pea sandwich. Yeah, yeah, and get some red bean ice cream in there as well. Mm. It's good stuff.
1: Now now speaking of uh Uh, of of culinary traditions uh, in in East Asia, Uh, I I thought we might take a little little bit of time here to discuss uh, the soybean, a vastly important bean and one of humanity's principal food crops. So um, in Chinese mythology, the soybean is one of the five grains which are either sacred themselves or their history is considered sacred. I think it depends on the telling. Uh, so the exact listing of five grains varies, but I think every version, or at least every version I was coming across, does include soybeans, uh, while some tellings will include the atzuki bean as one of the five grains. But the soybeans tend to make the list. And the five grains are often connected to the myth's of Xinong, the divine farmer, who we've talked about on the show before, the, the culture hero and mythological ruler of ancient China, often depicted in, um, in art as having bovine qualities to his appearance, including horns or horn like nubs on his head.
0: Oh, yeah. We love Xinong here. I think we talked about him in the mushroom foraging episode, didn't we? Because there's a le- yeah. legend that he, he sort of tested the mushrooms to see what was safe. Right, because he is, well, he,
1: in, in general, he's being the father of agriculture, he's said to have sought out and sampled a vast multitude of plants, and you know, and that would include mushrooms in the ancient sense, in order to determine what was beneficial and what was not. And in doing so, so it's also sometimes said that he sampled 70 poisons in one day. <laughs> uh, so again, he's just it's the father of, uh, of, of agriculture and, and to a large extent, uh, traditional medicine. But also, he's just the personification of the gradual process of humanity figuring out what different plants do uh, if they're consumed in different quantities. Now, as um, uh, Heimowitz and uh, Shurtleff pointed out in 2005's Debunking Soybean Myths and Legends in the Historical and Popular Literature... There are a lot of myths about soybeans that get passed along, and they ultimately involve everyone from Chinon to Benjamin Franklin. <laughs> While it is sometimes said that the mythical Shinong gave us the soybean as a domestic crop 5,000 years ago, uh, the authors stress that the real time period is likely the um, 11th century BCE or perhaps a bit earlier uh, based on recorded history. So uh, it's still really impressive.
0: Yeah. Now, do we know anything about how the soybean was domesticated, or does it seem like one of those things we have to infer, kind of like the examples we were talking about in part one, where it was probably like an accidental process of, uh, of uh, picking and then cultivating the ones, the, like the pods that stayed closed the longest in the natural varieties?
1: I believe that's the case. Uh, I was reading uh, uh, Robert M. Stupar's uh, Into the Wild uh, from uh, 2010 in PNAS, and the exact date uh, they write is still a matter of dispute. And, quote, most estimates approximate the domestication occurred somewhere between 3,100 and 9,000 years ago. So you know, a fair amount of leeway in, you know, in, in any attempt to really pinpoint when this was domesticated
0: Oh, yeah. This is actually something I came across uh, w- with the number of beans referenced in Alba's book, which th- there are a number of cases where we really just don't know when they were first domesticated. Mm-hmm. It's just not, you know, big question mark.
1: Now, uh, I, I want to get things back into the magical realm here because um, uh, I ran across this this wonderful um, tradition, this festival known as uh, Setsuban. And it's, um, it's a tradition in Japan involving beans. Uh, it's a spring festival, and it means changing of the seasons. And it has the same energy as a number of seasonal change traditions in, uh, in, uh, in Eastern cultures and cultures in general, including the expulsion of evil spirits and bad luck and the invocation of good luck and good health. Uh, and this one in particular uh, appears to have roots in Chinese Lunar New Year traditions that took on new form in Japanese culture. So one of the activities uh, around this time, and, you know, there's several different things. It's not just one thing you do, but one of the activities involves driving the Oni out of one's house. Uh, So the Oni, I think we've discussed them on the show before uh, in one of our Halloween episodes. Oni were evil spirits or demons thought capable of causing illness and disease.
0: I think we may have even discussed some kind of traditions of driving the Oni out of your house. Uh, This sounds very familiar.
1: Well, one way you can do it, especially uh, at Setsubun, is by pelting them with roasted soybeans. Ah. These are, these are also a traditional snack
0: of the festivities, uh, but uh, they symbolize purity. Oh, this makes me think of something that uh, you know is something that. So when I grew up, I always thought of beans being cooked in a wet application. You know, they're they're cooked Mm -hmm. in water, boiled over time. Of course, you know you usually need to do that to dry beans. Oh, because uh, this is another thing we actually haven't talked about in this episode yet, but. um, Many, many dry beans can have high levels of toxins in them if you do not boil them for, before eating them. So you don't ever want to take a dry bean and then just soak it and eat it. That can give you food poisoning. You you don't want to do that. Uh, you, you got to boil the beans or cook it with high heat somehow. But another common method in in many food traditions around the world is roasting beans, roasting them dry in some way. And I think you could probably do this with uh, with fresher beans probably. But you can kind of pop some beans like you can make popcorn.
1: Yeah. And, and certainly if you're trying to drive Oni out of the house, you don't want to be throwing uh, like handfuls of, of, uh, of canned beans or whole cans right. of beans. <laughs> That's be at going to be Yeah. Yeah. Especially since a lot of the times you can look up pictures of this in video. It's, it's pretty, uh, pretty charming because apparently sometimes at schools you'll have a, a principal or a teacher put on the Oni costume and the, and the children will be in the hallways and then they will throw the beans at the Oni to drive it out of the school. Oh, that's great. Now, I was reading a little bit more about this on the Japan Society website, and uh, I want to read a quote uh, from from their webpage that that gets into some more answers about why you would throw these beans at an oni. Uh, They write, quote, To find an answer, we must go back in time and look at Chinese numerology, where many concepts come in fives to correspond to the five elements – Wood, water, fire, metal, and earth. Soybeans were included in what were designated the five cereals, or the five most important crops. That's what we we just talked about. Mm -hmm. Uh, They continue, soybeans, or da-dao, literally the big bean, were considered particularly powerful because they were believed to contain the spirits of all the cereals combined. Um, Mame or bean is a homophone for mame, and I'm sure I'm I'm not saying mame correct in these these uh, cases. Mm -hmm. Uh, But in both cases, they're saying it means destroying evil. So soybeans were thought to be especially effective weapons against oni demons, somewhat like garlic is believed to be powerful against
0: vampires in the West. Wow. Okay. So the being the word "being" is a homophone for another word that that sounds similar but means destroying evil.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the, you know that's you see that connection come up uh, time and time again uh, when you're dealing with you know particularly with uh, uh, I, I've seen this you know plenty of times in um, in in Chinese writings where you know something just doesn't translate uh, like uh, the various ghost stories in. Um, uh, In uh, Tales from a Chinese Studio, Mm -hmm. like in translation, uh, they're all still really amusing. But a lot of times, if you were reading them in the original Mandarin, there would be uh, there would be uh, homophones in place that would make everything more meaningful or perhaps more funny in some cases, that sort of thing.
0: Yeah, there's I mean, there's so many features of, of Chinese poetry that I've read about. It's just so difficult to capture effectively in translation uh, and I do love a lot of Chinese poetry in translation but I mean that's one thing another thing I've read about is just that like a lot of really good Chinese poetry has a has a quality of density that cannot really mm. be communicated in English
1: yeah. Uh, th- now, uh, this, this idea of using beans as a, as a weapon against the demons or some sort of protective amulet against demons, uh, ultimately, this can be found in plenty of other cultures as well. So I'd like to come back to Frederick J. Uh, Simoon's Plants of Light, Plants of Death, uh, because uh, he has a number of other examples in which the, the beans are, are serving as a weapon or a protection against evil spirits. He points out that British folk belief once held that beans were associated with witches and you could protect yourself against a witch's evil spell by spitting a bean at her. Uh, <laughs> so so, rude. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it's, I, would not, I don't think you should spit beans at people that you think might be witches, but clearly it was once done. <laughs> All right, here's another. Uh, he also writes that at the start of the 18th century on the Isle of uh, Harry's in Scotland, Maluka beans, especially white Maluka beans, were worn around the necks of children as a ward against the evil eye and also such sort of witchcraft in general. And if evil magic came uh, shooting in at the child, the bean would turn black. Whoa. Which also reminds me of some of the, um, you know, we've talked about poison detection uh, uh, in in various cultures. uh, You know, it sounds like
0: trying to achieve the
1: same thing, but with a bean.
0: Oh, like your little uh, radiation detector badge, except it's for witchcraft. Yeah.
1: Uh, Now, there are other European beliefs of protective beans. Sicilian traditions held that beans had protective qualities for childbirth. So a woman in or approaching labor could eat nine black beans and that would serve as a protective, uh, uh, not really an amulet, it would be a protective act, I guess. Mm -hmm. There's also a tradition of stacking nine black beans and placing them on a table near a newborn child to protect it from evil spirits.
0: Wait, how do you stack
1: black beans? Um, I think it would be like a little pyramid of black beans. Okay. You kind of make a structure of the black beans. Okay. Now, in Morocco, uh, an amulet of, sa- of seven black beans could be used to protect sheep and goats from smallpox. And seven black beans could also be used by Moroccan scholars or scribes, rather, in order to become invisible. So, you know, <laughs> using black beans in some sort of uh, uh,
0: essentially uh, sorcery. Now, that's the kind of spell that I would imagine is probably more likely cataloged by somebody who attributes the 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 use to others rather than somebody who did it themselves, because you could probably quite quickly find out if you were actually trying this, that you cannot become invisible by using black beans, right?
1: Uh, there are also traditions uh, in Morocco of five black beans being used in protective amulets. So these might be, uh, for instance, sewn into fabric. So you could have uh, have the, the the five black beans in this piece of fabric that then you then wear as an amulet. Mm. And he he also makes mention uh, in the book of European traditions concerning Saint John's Eve. Uh, this is the um, the the Eve of celebration before the feast day of Saint John the Baptist. Uh, but the celebration itself. Uh, existed before the coming of Christianity. Um, and uh, it's uh, tied, as uh, Simmons explains, to summer solstice anxieties and the belief that this is a time when demons and evil spirits will rise up and must be driven back. And if this sounds a lot like Night on Bald Mountain from Disney's Fantasia, well, you are correct, because the original title of um, of Mussorgsky's music was St. John's Night on the Bear Mountain.
0: Oh, I didn't know that.
1: Yeah, that was new to me as well. But at any rate, it's, it's a time during which you have these various traditions involving fire, but also medicinal plants, uh, such as St. John's wort. And unfortunately, it also entailed more than a little burning of black cats. Yeah. But uh, given the fava beans association with the underworld and spirits, it may have been connected as well. In Tuscany, St. John's fire was uh, lighted in a field of beans to make them ripen faster, it said. And in Sicily, you ate your fava beans with a word of thanks to St. John. And there are other other religions had traditions of three beans that were ritually consumed, uh, representing wealth, competence and poverty, depending on the state of the peeling.
0: Oh, yeah. Well, this ties into another thing. I guess we sort of got into this when I was mentioning uh, Diogenes, the cynic philosopher uh, but the in there there is also a tradition of intentionally eating beans to signal asceticism, like the aesthetic life, you know, to say that mm-hmm. I, I, I reject the uh, the pleasures of this world, and I'm going to be a person of the simple virtues of the spirit, meaning that, you know, I, I, I'm not going to be eating butter and bacon every day. Instead, I'm going to be having beans. <laughs> which makes me think, of course, about the associations with John the Baptist. Right? John the Baptist lived in yeah. the wilderness, and he, you know, he wore rough clothes and he ate honey and locusts, which might be the equivalent of a medieval European monk saying, "Okay, I'm, i mean I'm just going to eat beans. I'm going to be a, you know, a person. Uh, I'm going to be a man of the wild and and just commune with God."
1: Now, I have one more to mention here, and this one brings us back to German uh, celebrations of Twelfth Night, and if this was the idea that uh, Germans and, uh, and, and other northern Europeans once uh, would select a king of the bean and sometimes a queen of the bean as well. <laughs> uh, and they would do this by, uh, by baking a, a cake which contained a single bean. Um, uh, this would be like a single black bean, perhaps. And uh, basically, it would be like everybody gets a piece of cake, and if yours has the bean in it, then congratulations,
0: you are the bean king. No, was it good to be the Bean King or bad to be the Bean King? Because there are a lot of traditions <laughs> where some, you get a special piece of cake, and that means you're kind of like scorned.
1: Yeah, well, this one doesn't seem particularly Wicker manny if that's okay. what you're asking. Yeah. Um, <laughs> This is this is what um, this is is what he writes Um, of particular interest to us is the report that the first act of a bean king after he had been enthroned and congratulated involved his being lifted three times to the ceiling of the house where he drew white crosses of chalk on the beams and rafters to protect against evil spirits, devils and witchcraft for the coming year. Also prominent in some places have been concerns about weather and crop fertility and yield and the cake itself serving in divining good or bad things that might affect people in the ensuing year. Hmm. Okay. So, I mean, I, uh, I don't know what, what else it uh, necessarily uh, entailed, but that first uh, major act of being king of the bean doesn't sound too bad.
0: No, no, no. It's no, it doesn't sound like they're about to throw him into the fire or anything. no. <laughs>
1: All right well, uh hopefully we have um, introduced a new spooky supernatural world of uh, of bean fields to everyone uh, out there uh, and and just made you think a little bit more about your beans and we would love to hear from you uh what are your favorite beans uh, uh, do you are you privy to any uh superstitions or customs or rituals involving beans that we didn't mention here because definitely write in and tell us about them also um Do you own the company Rancho Gordo and want to send Joe and I free beans because we mentioned your company? Oh, sponsor Uh, our show. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Go for it. Uh, We would uh, we'd love to love to be a part of that. Uh, But uh, yeah, in general, we just love to hear from everybody out there um, about uh, about beans, beans, the uh, the magical fruit, the mystical fruit, the supernatural fruit, but also not a fruit, not technically. In the meantime, if you would like to uh, hear other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you know where to find them. You can find them in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. And you'll you'll find that wherever you get your podcasts these days. I don't know. There's so many places to get podcasts. Uh, but we should be wherever that is that you're going. And if you can rate and review the show at that place, if they let you do that, uh, well, then do that. That helps us out. That's uh, that, uh, uh, supposedly good, or so they tell. Um, yeah, yeah. That's Give us five got. of Sorry. five beans, five out of five beans, uh, but only the good beans, not the not the witchcraft beans, just the the demon defeating beans. So I don't know, sort them out, figure out which ones which.
0: Five out of five haunted bleeding beans for sexual potency. Apple Podcasts are wherever you listen to your favorite shows.